Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. On the 7th of December, 1811, in the Docklands of London, a hideously violent quadruple murder occurred. The perpetrator was unknown, but mystery surrounded the case particularly as the four victims had been killed in complete silence and with no apparent motive. People began to panic that the mysterious murderer may strike again, and their fears weren't unfounded when just 12 days later, another household was slain in a similar manner. With a violent criminal on the loose, it wouldn't be long before someone had to pay for the crime, but without an established police force and a distinct lack of evidence collected, would the right person end up in prison? This time, on the Card London. We uncover the mystery of the Ratcliffe Highway Murders. The Docklands area of London in 1811 was a busy hub of activity from all over the world. The bustling wharfs, quays and docks were awash with sailors, traders and Londoners who made their living from the passing ship traffic. Full of transient types and pickpockets looking to steal wares from many a drunken sailor, the docks were always somewhere to be wary of, but the waterways were a profitable place to live nearby if you kept your wits about you. The grimy docks had always been a place to be wary of. Gone were the days of hanging pirates in gibbets on the foreshore for the passing public to see, but the shadowy past still haunted the area, and for that reason, the land by the foreshore was eerily blank compared to the crowded spaces further inland, which now had multi-occupancy households tightly packed together. Those who had the entrepreneurial foresight to set up shops nearby the river had the first pick of goods that came into the port. Spices, tea, coffee, and some of the finest fabrics money could buy. And even better if those goods were a bit cheaper due to them having been liberated with a five-finger discount from the back of a boat. Thomas Marr, a 24-year-old retired sailor, had seen the wonderful fabrics coming in from the docks and had decided that working on the ships was not for him anymore, seeking a more relaxed pace of life. Along with his wife Celia, 
Thomas began looking to set up shop, selling a wide variety of fine fabrics, including linens, lace, furs and handcrafted fabric items. And in mid-April, they began renting a shop they'd secured at 29 Ratcliffe Highway. The shop was not in excellent condition, but with the help of a carpenter, Mr Pugh, the family modernised the shop to make it more attractive to the passing public. A new shop front was installed and painted green so as to stand out from the drab surroundings and attract the eye of anyone passing. The highway was a busy thoroughfare, and as such, a good place to have a shop. Many people in the area let rooms to sailors and provided lodgings, or dodgy landlords crammed in many people into the cheap housing, requiring the mass services for bedsheets, curtains and other linens. Business was profitable enough to let them live comfortably, but not extravagantly. After all, they still resided in one of the poorer and more crime-stricken parts of London, surrounded by crowded local tenements, and on the doorstep, the slums of East London. However, life was going relatively well for the young couple. With Thomas now home on a regular basis, they'd started employing some help at the shop. Celia was pregnant and soon to give birth, so she was happy to have some assistance with her duties. They employed a housemaid, Margaret Jewell, who lived at the shop, and also an apprentice, James Garran, who helped Thomas with making items for the business. One evening, as the shop was closing and the affairs of the day were being wrapped up, Thomas and James had a hankering for a midnight snack. At 11.45, Celia, who was feeding her now three-month-old baby before putting him down to sleep for the night, instructed Margaret to pop out and use some of the takings from the day to pay the baker's bill and to also see if she could track down a few oysters for supper. A once abundant food source, oysters were one of the cleanest and cheapest foods available to the lower classes of London, and due to their availability from the nearby Thames, they were as fresh as they could be. Unlike the posh restaurants today, which will charge a huge amount per oyster, the locals living by the Thames could snap up a platter of them for next to nothing. In search of the seafood, and with a crisp £1 note handed to her by Mr Marr in her pocket, Margaret headed out. It wasn't unusual for people to be quite active late into the night in the Docklands of London, as the incoming sailors and transient nature of the passing foot traffic meant that people were arriving into the ports at all hours of the day and night. People worked long and varied hours, working until they were needed, not to a specific set time. However, on this particularly chilly December evening, everyone had seemingly retired early, as Margaret found the bakers closed and failed to find any oysters, as all the other shops had closed for the night, so she returned back to the Mars shop empty-handed. As she approached the shop, she noticed it was in darkness, and that the shop shutters had been closed. Trying the door, she found it had been locked. She knocked on the door, but there was no answer. She rang the bell and knocked again, but there was no answer. As she stood in the cold gloom of the street, she heard faint noises from within the house. The low cry of the baby and footsteps descending down the stairs. Hoping that someone was coming to let her in, she knocked again and rang the bell, but no one came. As she stood outside in the dark and cold, her calls growing increasingly desperate, she attracted the attention of a passing night watchman at around ten to one. As he approached her, the night watchman told her to move along, as she was causing a nuisance. In her defence, Margaret explained that she belonged to the owners of the shop and was their servant girl. He listened to her story and began to help her in summoning the attention of the suspiciously quiet Mars by knocking, rattling the windows, shouting and ringing the bell. In the early 1800s, night watchmen were the guardians of their respective neighbourhoods. They would keep an eye over the residents and also call out the time on the hour and remind everyone that all was well. 
The job of the night watchman was also to check the residents' safety on their particular patch, and this night, George Olney, watchman for this particular part of Ratcliffe Highway, had done just that only ten minutes earlier. At around ten past midnight, George had been passing the Mars shop and had noticed that one of the shop shutters wasn't completely secure. Shouting out to the inhabitants, he informed them of the missing pin, to which he received a reply of, we know, from who he assumed to be Mr. Marr. The night watchman and Margaret were beginning to become increasingly concerned for what may have happened inside the shop, and now kicking the door disrupted the next-door neighbour, John Murray, a pawnbroker who owned the adjacent shop. Mr. Murray was sitting in his kitchen, having supper, after having closed his shop at a similar time to the Mars. While sitting around the table with his family, he did hear faint noises from next door, like the dragging of a chair and a raised voice of a woman, or a boy, but he didn't think any more of it, as there didn't seem to be anything untoward about it. Upon hearing the bell ringing out, and the increased knocking from Margaret and the watchman, John went to see what was happening. Margaret and George explained to John what all the noise was about, Mr. Murray said he had seen a light emanating from the back of the house, so he was sure the Mars were probably asleep and had simply forgotten about poor Margaret out in the cold. John said he'd see if he could climb over the wall and gain access into the Mars yard. By this time, another night watchman had heard the noise and came to investigate. The two stood outside with Margaret and let Mr. Murray do all the hard work of scaling the wall and searching the house. As it stood, night watchmen were usually older men and the physical exertion required for climbing a wall may have exceeded their capabilities, so John took matters into his own hands, instructing the men to stay with Margaret and continue trying to wake the Mars. Mr. Murray scaled the wall and saw that the back door was open. He called out to Mr. Mars through the door, but there was no answer. He could see that the light on the landing was still glowing, so he went into the house to investigate further. Heading into the back hallway, John ascended the stairs, helping himself to the lit candle which was sat atop a table on the landing, and which had been the light he'd been able to see from the yard. The candlelight revealed that the Mars bedroom door was open, and so as to not startle the sleeping couple, John called out softly into the darkness, but again his calls went unanswered. He descended the stairs with the intention of letting Margaret in through the front door so she could finally get to bed after her inconvenience of her long wait outside in the cold. As John turned the corner, heading toward the door which led into the shop, his foot touched something wet. Out of the gloom, John could make out a bulk on the floor and went closer to inspect it. Bringing the candle closer to the mass, John was not prepared for the horror about to befall him, which would haunt him for the rest of his days. The flame illuminated the hideously mangled face of the Mars apprentice, James, whose body was laying lifeless on the floor. Whatever had happened to the boy had been so violent and relentless that his face was barely recognisable, and his skull had been cracked open, leaving his brain partly protruding from his head and the rest coating the ceiling. As he proceeded further into the shop, he again was met with another incomprehensible sight, another lifeless body on the floor, this time Mrs. Marr lying face down on the floor, blood pooling beneath her mangled face. Stepping over the body, John unlatched the door, his face white as a sheet, and uttered that there'd been a dreadful murder. By this time, a crowd of several people who had been attracted by the activity went straight into the shop. At the sight of the mutilated bodies, Margaret began screaming and crying, and she wasn't alone. Murray began mumbling incoherently and had to steady himself against the shop counter, 
that his horrific finds were not over just yet. John tilted his head, inadvertently looking behind the counter, and there he discovered yet another victim. Mr. Marr was lying face down, lifeless, and again with a severely mangled and crushed skull. The shop was now a chaotic mess of horrified people, shouting and screaming, mangled bodies, blood and darkness. In the mayhem, one thing had been forgotten. What had happened to Timothy Jr., the baby whom Margaret had left Mrs. Marr nursing in the kitchen when she left to get oysters? Margaret and a few others rushed down to the kitchen to get the infant, but whomever had committed the murders had not forgotten about the baby. Before the cradle he was sleeping in had even been touched, the blood could be seen seeping through his swaddling. Timothy had received the same violence to his head as the rest of his family, and in addition, his throat had also been slit so deeply that his head was almost severed from his body. Perhaps in an attempt to stop his cries from drawing attention to the crime. With everyone now in a state of panic and disorder, the alarm was raised and murder was cried out to wake those in the neighbouring houses. By this time, a few policemen had been called upon from Wapping Marine Police Station, a half a mile walk from the Mars house. The Marine Police were a very small force, consisting of just a handful of officers, residing at the first police station in the whole of London, which backed onto the River Thames, and still sits in its original location in Wapping to this day. The local residents and dock workers were not at all pleased when the small force was established, for those that live near the docks, a pretty penny could be made by striking a deal with sailors and by stealing precious cargo when people weren't looking. Those that worked on the boats knew they could make some pocket money for their shore leave by turning a blind eye and turn for a few beer tokens. It was a good system which didn't seem to harm anyone apart from the already rich merchants. After all, sailors' payments for working on the ships were minimal and the cargo was not bought by them, so they were indifferent to it being slightly lighter by the time they arrived at their destination. This may well have been how Mr. Marr came about some of his finest linens to boot. In fact, there was such a dislike of the new policing of the docks that one officer, Gabriel Franks, was killed after a gang of dock workers set upon him and beat him to death. But this was 11 years before the Marr family suffered the same fate. But as the preventative presence caused less goods to be stolen and the merchants to become richer, it seemed worth pursuing as public cost by the government, even with the occasional poorly paid officer murdered in the line of duty. However, on the night of the murders, the neighbours would have been happy to welcome them in the hope that they may find the perpetrator, and quickly. A few police arrived at the scene and entered the bloodied shop floor. They immediately began looking for clues as to who may have been responsible for the heinous crime. One officer, Constable Charles Horton, searched upstairs and found a maul, the type of pointed mallet used on ships, resting against a chair. There was no doubt this was the weapon of choice for the murderer, as it was covered in fresh blood and had hair of the victim stuck to the end of it. Whomever had committed the crime either left the weapon behind as a warning to others, or perhaps they had been scared off when Margaret rang the bell, leaving the maul behind as it was too heavy to make a quick getaway with. There was also a chisel found upon the counter, but this had no blood upon it, but it was strangely left on the counter looking completely out of place, and as if it had been left there on purpose. Further searching revealed that no money or valuables had been taken from the shop, despite it being readily available. There were plenty of items in the shop that could have been stolen, 
A reasonable amount of cash was found in the till, and also what was presumably the Mars savings of £152 was found sequestered in the same bedroom that the murder weapon was discovered in. Mr Mars corpse had £5 in his top pocket, which would have been a handsome reward for any burglar, and yet anything worth taking was left untouched. Whoever carried out these killings was either disturbed by Margaret ringing the doorbell and fled before they had time to take the money, or they had a personal vendetta against the family and only wanted their lives, not their belongings. On checking over the yard, two sets of bloody footprints were found, suggesting that there were at least two murderers, which would explain the superhuman act of murdering four people in less than 20 minutes with extreme force. The investigation was immediately underway. The police had been held in low regard by the general public, and as the investigation was to progress, the force had a lot to prove. Before Horton had even had a chance to set foot back in the police station in Wapping, three people had been apprehended for the murder and placed in custody. Horton hadn't even relayed his evidence yet, but here the gallant officers were with three young men in custody. A job well done for the force. Everyone could pack up and go home for the night, safe in the knowledge the crime was solved. Of course, these three men were not the perpetrators and were only arrested on some scant eyewitness report of them acting shiftily. So without much to hold them on, the men were released without charge. In an attempt to impress and dazzle with their skills, the police had already fallen at the first hurdle. As the night of the murders turned to day, word was spreading to those further afield over their breakfast. Cries of what news were met with murder and the rumours of what had happened to the Mars began to spread. The crime scene was opened up to visitors to see the bodies and in the subsequent days the highway was so crammed full of people trying to get a peek at the slaughtered family that the road became impassable. On the 10th of December, three days after the murders, an inquest was held in the Jolly Sailor pub near to the Mars shop. At the inquest, Margaret Jewell, the servant girl, John Murray, the next-door neighbour, and the coroner, Walter Salter, yes, that was his real name, all gave evidence of what they'd witnessed on the night of the murders. Margaret was so upset to recount the scene again that she fainted whilst testifying and wasn't pressed any further. The jury only took a short while to return a verdict of willful murder by person or persons unknown, and the process began of trying to secure a fast conviction. The Mars murders were already starting to have an effect on those living nearby, and all the local pubs were stuffed full of people wanting to discuss the horrid scene at length. The fear of the neighbourhood was growing exponentially, and the residents were terrified that the murderer was still at large. Some rumours sprang up that Mr Marr had given evidence against a Portuguese sailor who had subsequently been hanged, and the friends of the executed sought revenge against the family. This brought comfort to those who thought there was a motive in the murders, but this was proven to not be true, and the brief moment of respite was lifted. Over the next few days, many other people were taken into custody, but no arrests were made. To speed up the process, and to encourage anyone with information to come forward, a reward of £50 was offered by the magistrates, but as the news of the murder spread further, more donations were given to the fund from the government, parishes and philanthropists, and eventually amassed an enormous reward of £700, which is the equivalent to £59,000 today. Such a huge amount of reward money at stake, this now meant that anyone who had even met the Mars was under intense scrutiny from their peers. The carpenter who had helped the family refit the shop was questioned, as he had been in the shop that day, but no evidence could be found against him, 
and he was let go. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A servant girl that had worked with the family before Margaret was also brought in for questioning on account of her having been fired and perhaps holding a vendetta against the Mars. But as she was quite small, it was unlikely that she'd been able to wield a large ship's mallet with enough force to kill four people. One likely suspect was Mars' brother. The pair were known to have fought regularly and had recently yet another falling out. Police were very interested in his whereabouts on the evening. Interrogating him for 48 hours before his alibi was proven and he was allowed to go free. Again, all possible roads of investigation now reached dead ends. By this time, most of London, at least those with a strong enough constitution, had been to see the Mars lying in repose, and it was time for them to be laid to rest. The family was buried together at St George's in the East on the 15th of December, and the servant boy, James, was buried in a separate grave in a different graveyard on the 11th of December, straight after his body was returned to his traumatised parents after the closing of the inquest. James's family buried him in the Baptist burial ground in Goodman's Fields, a cheaper burial ground that has since been covered by council flats, where James's funeral was a quiet and subdued affair, the Mars would not afforded the same privacy. People lined the streets to watch the two coffins, one with Timothy and one with Celia and baby Timothy inside, drawn along on horse-drawn carts, before heading to the church where a memorial service was held and a headstone erected. The headstone has sadly since decayed and only a small part of it remained until recently when it was removed due to safety issues with many of the headstones in the churchyard, which is now used by many locals as a park. The funeral was a packed affair, with many people refusing to leave after Sunday service due to them having prime position. The pallbearers struggled to squeeze through the melee, but eventually made their way to the front of the church, 
The crowd all joined together in loudly defaming the murderers as a prayer of vengeance was said in unison. The family of the Mars had only been at the church two months earlier when baby Timothy was baptised, and none of them would have expected to have been back two months later to see their funeral. With the Mars and James now laid to rest, the neighbourhood could begin drawing a line under the horror of the past week, but they couldn't completely relax, as the murderer was still at large and would soon strike again. A short stroll from the Mars shop was a street lined with taverns called New Gravel Lane, a lively and sometimes debauched area due to the vast amounts of ale consumed by sailors, sex workers and pickpockets, one pub stood out from the others. The King's Arms was a quiet pub owned by John and Elizabeth Williamson. John, 56, and Elizabeth, 60, were known for the relaxed and calm atmosphere of their pub, which was at stark juxtaposition with many of the rowdy nearby establishments. To avoid attracting the clientele who had already had too much of the devil's nectar, John and Elizabeth would regularly close early. Earlier in the evening, John had become spooked by a tall man who was hanging around outside the King's Arms. He was staying just far enough away to be unnerving, and John caught him later on listening at a side door of the pub and shooed him away. He told a night watchman to keep an eye on the pub and to arrest the man if he saw him, but unfortunately no arrest was made, and the next time Williamson was seen by the police, he was dead. Around an hour after the pub had closed at 10pm, a dumbfounded crowd gathered to watch a half-naked man descend from a window via a string of bedsheets tied together. The man was crying out murder and was helped down by the confused drinkers of New Gravel Street. He shouted that there were men in the house slaying the family. Two men by the name of Ludgate and Hawes were possibly emboldened by a few pints they'd sunk in the adjacent pub and took it upon themselves to catch the murderer. They bashed their way through the front door of the pub to try and apprehend them, but again, the commotion caused outside the pub must have scared them away, much like in the Mars murder. The half-naked man hanging out the window was John Turner, and he was a long-term lodger at the King's Arms, where he'd been in his room sleeping, when he'd heard a loud bang come from downstairs. He went to investigate, and to his horror, saw someone bludgeoning the publicans to death. In fear, he crept back upstairs and began fashioning makeshift bedsheet rope to descend from the window to avoid suffering the same fate. Once the men had broken into the pub, they discovered a gruesome sight. There were three beaten bodies. All had suffered similar injuries as the Marr family, but had been even more brutalised due to the throats of each victim having been slit. The three bodies were John and Elizabeth, and also their maid, Bridget Harrington. John's body was found in the tap room with a crowbar next to him, which was presumed to have been the murder weapon. Unlike the Mars, John had seemingly seen his attacker coming, as there were signs of a struggle and his hand was nearly severed due to him presumably trying to hold the blade of the knife which would be used to slit his throat. Both Elizabeth and Bridget were found in the living room where they'd been presumably chatting before retiring to bed. Elizabeth was on the floor, almost decapitated. Bridget was found face down in front of the fireplace. If this had been the work of just one person, they would have had to have been very quiet to kill Elizabeth, whilst Bridget was in the same room, and her not to have screamed the house down. As it was, it looked like two attackers or more had entered the home and taken a victim each. Blood was found on a windowsill, and footprints in clay were found in the back entrance to the pub, 
It looked as if someone had dropped out of the window and then scrambled over the back wall, leaving mud smeared against it. Whoever made the getaway would definitely have been left quite grubby. Those searching the home had a shock when they came across what they thought was another corpse of a girl upstairs, but when they approached the bed, she sat upright and asked what was going on. The little girl was the Williamson's granddaughter, Catherine, who had escaped being murdered, presumably due to John Turner escaping from the window, screaming bloody murder and scaring the perpetrators away. The alarm was raised and cries of murder were heard all over the East End. London Bridge was closed to stop anyone escaping across the river. Alarm bells rang out and gangs were formed to hunt down the killer. The people of the Docklands didn't want to let them get away for a second time. People roamed the streets looking for anyone who may look like the type to have been a murderer. Men were searched for blood spots on their clothing. And that night the local police cells were fit to bursting with many innocent men who had no evidence brought against them except that they looked a little dodgy. With no centralised police force and no plan of how to catch the perpetrator, the public were forced to carry out the manhunt themselves, but came up short. Even the magistrates called for anyone slightly suspicious looking to be rounded up and questioned, but this broad line of attack wasted the very limited police time on false leads and was completely fruitless. On the night of the second murder, the mall that was found at the Mars was finally cleaned at the police station, where it was being held as evidence. Upon the underside of the mallet, there were some initials. In the chaos of the Mars murder, the weapon had been collected, but no one had thought to examine it. Twelve days later, and with another three people dead, this clue may have been enough to track down the murderer before he had a chance to kill the Williamsons, but alas, it had been overlooked. If the murderer was the owner of the mall, his initials were either I or JP. The news of the initials published in next morning's newspaper, coffee houses, pubs and city streets were full of people trying to hunt down the elusive JP. One woman said she knew a sailor by the name of John Peterson, who was originally from Hamburg, but now resided in London. But when people went looking for him, he was away at sea, and had been for the past fortnight, meaning he couldn't have committed the murders. Eyes were also on John Turner, the lodger, as police didn't think he was entirely innocent, and perhaps he had used the Mars murder as inspiration to burgle the Williamsons. However, due to him having lodged at the house for over eight months, this seemed unlikely, and the signs of struggle on at least Mr Williamson's body would suggest that he didn't know his killer, and that this was an attack by a stranger. However, John's eyewitness report stated that he saw a tall man wearing a long coat, hunched over Elizabeth's body, clearing out her pockets, and didn't mention a second man. As John crept back upstairs, he said he could hear someone creeping around the house very softly, and said that there had definitely been things stolen from the corpses, such as Mr Williamson's watch, which wasn't present when he saw his body in the basement, after re-entering the house after his window escape. With the second murder, the panic rose in East London to a fever pitch. The magistrates and the police had to arrest someone, and fast. One name had cropped up a number of times when discussing the case, and that was John Williams. John was a sailor who lodged at the Pear Tree Inn nearby to both murder sites. John shared a room with another sailor, who mentioned to the police in passing that he'd arrived home very late on both evenings of the murders. It was also discovered that John had an old grudge against Ma from their time as shipmates together. 
and it was assumed that Williams killed the whole family in an act of revenge. However, the second set of murders were not able to be linked to him at all, apart from the fact that he was seen in the pub earlier in the evening. John was said to be friends with the Williamsons, and having been a regular in their pub, but he held no grudges against them, and Mrs Williamson was even seen earlier in the evening hugging John before he left. Williams measured 5 foot 9, which made him not particularly tall, which went against Turner's description of a tall man standing over Elizabeth's body. John's roommate stated that he had no money before the Williamson's murders, but afterwards he seemingly had some cash. John's laundry lady also said she'd washed and repaired some bloodstained clothes for him in the past week. With this being the strongest lead that had been produced, Williams was taken into custody and interrogated. When asked where he was on the night of the murder, John said he'd left the King's Arms to pawn some clothing, which was where his money was said to have come from. Once he had some cash in his pocket, he went to see an apothecary to treat an old wound he'd obtained during sailing, which was beginning to fester. Neither of these alibis were investigated despite John having receipts for both, and he was arrested and placed in Coldbath Fields Prison along with two other suspects, despite there being no concrete evidence of them having been the ones to commit the crimes. With John behind bars, the public were gearing up for a trial like no other. John was pleading his innocence, but no one would listen to him, and with the authorities being pressured to find a responsible party, it wasn't looking good for him. Whatever way the situation played out, there was going to be no reprieve for John. If he was cleared and released, he would always have his name tarnished, and if he was convicted, he would hang in front of a banging crowd. John had only one way out. On the morning of the 28th of December, John tied his scarf around the bars which covered his window of his jail cell and hanged himself. The people of London now had the eighth victim of the Ratcliffe Highway murders. Or at least, that's what the public were led to believe. John was apparently quite sure he would be released from prison due to the lack of evidence held against him. He'd been speaking out to other prisoners about his release and what he would do when he was let out. If John was to be released, the authorities would look incredibly incompetent and the public would have no confidence in those who were meant to keep them safe. If John was dead, the murders would be solved and the public could relax back into their everyday banality, safe in the knowledge they wouldn't be bludgeoned to death in their own homes. With John now dead, the trial still went ahead and he was found guilty. This was due to the evidence already presented against him, but also as a result of some new evidence from his landlady. She'd seen some clay-covered and bloodied clothing that had belonged to John hanging out to dry in the backyard, which would correlate with the report from the Williamson's murder of the clay having been smeared on the wall by the escaping murderer. With Williams now dead, and the other suspects having been found innocent as well, the British public felt that they'd been cheated in seeing someone hang for the murders. They'd also not been able to see that Williams was actually dead, which filled them with fear that he may have actually escaped from prison and still been roaming the streets. In a bizarre act, the Home Secretary decided that a public display should be made of Williams' corpse. On New Year's Eve, John's body was put onto a cart and drawn the length of the highway between the two murder sites of the Mars and the Williamsons. His body was for the most part left alone, but when the cart stopped outside the Mars home, it rested there in silence for 15 minutes. One man was overcome with anger and slapped John's face, turning his head to face the Mars shop. 
in an act of his body being made to face his apparent actions. Eventually, when the cart reached a crossroads nearby the church where the Mars were buried, John's lifeless body was tumbled from the cart into a pre-dug grave. As if the public humiliation of a dead man's body wasn't enough, a stake was then driven through his heart to stop him returning from the dead. For the people of the East End, December was a month of horror, but even if the wrong man had been buried, they still could seek catharsis that at least someone had been caught for the murders, even if it wasn't the right person. After John died, no more murders were committed, so maybe the police were right and did convict the correct man. Or perhaps the real murderer saw the calamity around the case and decided to flee in case they suffered the same fate. The police were still a way off becoming the force we know today, but steps were sought to improve the way individual parishes operated, and some good did come from the murders, as things were tightened up and the collection and inspection of evidence was taken more seriously from then on. For the people of London at that time, they were set adrift by those that were meant to be keeping them safe, and for the community, they were left with the feeling of them being wronged by someone who never faced their true justice. Perhaps the best way to describe exactly the pain, fear and anguish the people of Ratcliffe Highway felt in December of 1811 is best said by them. Here is what was written upon the Mars epitaph. Stop, mortal, stop as you pass by, and view the grave wherein doth lie a father, mother, and a son, whose earthly course was shortly run. For lo, all in one fateful hour o'ercame were they with ruthless power, and murdered in a cruel state, yea, far too horrid to relate. They spared not one to tell the tale, one for the other could not wail, the other's fate in anguish sighed. Loving they lived, together died. Reflect, O reader, o'er their fate, and turn from sin before too late. Life is uncertain in this world, oft in a moment we are hurled to endless bliss or endless pain. So let not sin within you reign. Thank you for joining me for that episode of Macabre London. A huge thank you to the delightful Gemma Moore who read the epitaph at the end of the episode there. You can catch Gemma on her own podcast, The Hobbycast, which has just started its second season. You can also catch me on an episode of The Hobbycast in season one, so make sure you go and check it out. Gemma is also in the amazingly terrifying lockdown horror movie Host, which you can catch on Shudder right now. Her socials will also be listed below, so please send us some love. Let me know in the comments below if you think John was the murderer or if it was somebody else. I'd love to hear your theories around this case because it's a quite a wild one. If you enjoyed today's episode and you'd like more, then please make sure you like, comment and most importantly subscribe to the channel and click the bell icon so you get notified whenever I upload a new video on YouTube. Or if you're listening to the podcast, then please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can support me on Patreon if you'd like to be part of the channel and have your name mentioned at the end of the show. And you also get goodies sent to you too. Thank you, fiends, for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce, and I will see you ghouls next time. Mm-hmm.